Floyd, would you lead us, open us in prayer? (laughs) Father, we are thankful that you brought us together tonight. We're thankful for your faithfulness, even when we're not faithful. But we ask tonight that through our desire to get to know you better, Father, and know more about you so that we can worship you even more purer than we do now. We ask that you open our minds and our hearts tonight and teach us Teach us what you want us to know about you in particular tonight. These things we ask in Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen. So we are in Matthew 23 still, and we can uh, begin. Let's. We're going to read verses 13 to 24. Freddie, would you be willing to read for us? Yes, I will. Okay. Starting in verse 13 and going to 24. Matthew 23, 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against me, for you neither go in yourself, nor do you allow those who are in to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses before you. Pretense, make long prayers, therefore you will receive greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to win one cross the line. And when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourself. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, whoever swears by the temple, it is nothing but whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, for which is greater the gold or the temple that sacrifices the gold. And whoever swears by the altar, it is nothing but whoever swears by the gift that it is on it, he is obligated to perform it. Fools for blind, for which is greater the gift or the altar that sacrifices the gift. Therefore, he who swears by the altar, swears by it and by all things on it. He who swears by temple, he who swears by the temple, swears by it and by him who dwells in it. He who swears by heaven, swears by the throne of God. And by him who sits on it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and uh, have neglected the, the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others of the law. Blind guide who strain out a net and swallow a Thank you. Thank you, Freddie. So we're in this section in here called the seven woes, or in Hebrew it's oi. So yes. It is oi. Hoy. Okay, and also hoy. Um, in fact we were talking last time about how oi 
the word oi today is more out of the, the, the same idea, but from the Yiddish side of things, that the, we get the term like oi ve and, and so on, somewhat, that the, you hear a lot used today. But um, in these woes we were talking about before, they're strong, strong laments, very um, powerful, very, um, you, you, they were cries, not just, or, or um, they were loud laments, not just something that's like, whoa. It's something like, oi! You know, it was to be something that everyone heard and got a hold of. It's a proclamation that's being made here. So we talked about how um, each one of these woes, or oys, has a, um, an aspect of hypocrisy. And they, you see that used in each one of the woes that Yeshua refers to them as hypocrites. And in two of the woes, you have illustrated the idea of hypocrisy that we talked about a couple weeks ago. And out of the seven woes, last week we got through two of the other ones. Specifically, last week we talked about the oaths. <clears throat> and we talked about how the Pharisees had this idea that if you swore by, for example, the gold, it was worse, or it, it, it mattered, but if you swore by the temple, it wasn't as important. Because the gold was really the big deal, not the temple. And we talked about how it was the same thing with the offering. The offering was really what counted in the Pharisees' mind, but if you swore by the altar, then that wasn't that that was somewhat invalid. And we talked about how you can't separate those two. How you can't have the offering by itself without the altar, and how you can't have the gold without the temple, because they wanted to get technical on what you swore by. And if you didn't swear by that, then it kind of invalidated it. And some of this is designed with the idea that the Pharisees looked at what their own works were as opposed to what was already established by the Lord. And they were kind of trying to make a difference in that sense. But Yeshua is saying you can't separate them. You can't have the gold without the temple. You can't have an offering without the altar. And then at the end of the verse, at the end of that section on oaths, he makes an inference or a, talking about how it says in Scripture, uh, God's heaven is God's throne and earth is his footstool. And this was also what I was trying to connect a little bit last week in referring to Matthew chapter 5. In verses 34 and 35, Yeshua makes that same connection of saying, heaven is God's throne and earth is his footstool. And we read that passage in Isaiah 66 talking about how it's a passage about worship and how we approach the Lord. So then we move from there to our fourth, in a sense, oi, talking about the widows. And does anyone remember what we talked about concerning the widows? Especially that particular verse, verse 14. 
Well, in the Greek text, in some of the Greek texts, it's it, you actually have a footnote in your Bible. There is no verse 14 because it it says it's not in all the texts. But when you look at verse 14 on its own and then look at it in terms of where it's also found in the New Testament, we saw that it's found in Mark chapter 12 and Luke chapter 20. And we connected this idea of how they make long prayers and and then it says they eat up or they swallow widows' houses. And we talked about in the context we talked about in the context immediately after Yeshua makes these statements in both Mark and Luke, we have a story that most of us know as the widow's mind. And which the widow offers what? What does she make an offering in the box at the temple? Everything she had. Everything she had. And it wasn't a lot, but it was everything she had. And we talked about part of the example that Yeshua commands her for is her faith. That she's willing to make that kind of, I'm all in. And we talked about how that's how our attitude should be when it comes to worship. Are we all the way in with the Lord? Because sometimes we find ourselves, some of us with one foot on the inside, one foot on the outside trying to, um, you know, kind of trying to be in both sides, trying to play it on both sides, but it doesn't always work well for us if we're just half-hearted and half-committed. And we talked about, especially today, I think, we see sing, a lot of single women, a lot of widows, they make things happen in congregations. They're very committed, and they make a definite, um, they make a definite influence today in our worship and in our lives congregationally because of the fact that they are so solely focused on serving the Lord and coming into that idea of being all in, willing to make that full sacrifice. And part of the picture we were saying here is because widows have so little that they saw anybody, they probably looked at different folks and decided, I'm going to support this person with what I have. And so we talked about the fact that widows probably didn't have a lot, but they probably gave to the people that they thought were really anointed of God. And at that time... It, Probably some of those people were Pharisees. And if they were, in a sense, supporting the Pharisees, and the Pharisees, in turn, were not looking to do their part to help them, but instead looked to kind of have the relationship somewhat unequally yoked in that sense of the Pharisees getting from the widows, but maybe not giving back to the widows, that that would be the picture of what it means that Yeshua is talking about here in they swallow up widows' houses. It, it uh, reminds me, uh, Michael, of uh, Ezekiel 34, where God is condemning the shepherds of Israel for uh, squeezing the sheep and not taking care of them. 
Absolutely. That's a very um, vivid passage. And in that passage, the part that really takes in is God begins to make a personal statement that he's going to personally come and he's going to personally seek and save the lost. He's going to come and, and, and do the work that the shepherds aren't doing. And so that kind of leads into how the widow gave then into the next, into one of our next woes, which has to do with tithing. And I know we're kind of taking the woes a little bit out of order per se, but I think the way um, the Lord's kind of given me a vision of how to present this means that we'll be looking now at verses 23 and 24. Because from the widow's gift and from the widow's support of the Pharisees, I wanted to look at how the Pharisees' attitude was toward giving. Did they have the right idea of what it meant to tithe? And so, tithing is a command. Does everybody understand that part? It's found in Scripture. God establishes it. He establishes it in vision in a in a very visionary way, and it very much because he's telling the people that their relationship with tithing is something that's going to um, it's going to progress. He says, right now you're not in the land, but when you get to the land, this is what tithing's going to look like. And Rabbi Haim covered some of that on Shabbat with what he was saying in Leviticus 23. How they weren't tithing at that point in time because they're all at the wilderness of Sinai in Leviticus. But over time, when they get to the land, tithing is going to change. And in Deuteronomy 12, God lays out that vision. He says you're going to save your tithes, your offerings, and you're going to bring them to the place. And in Hebrew, that's the word we sometimes find for God, the word ha-makom. I don't know if I'm spelling that right. Ha-makom, the place. And God says, so you're to bring them to the place that I will put my name. And we don't know in Deuteronomy 12 what that place is. We find out later it's Jerusalem and that what that looks like as, as Scripture is revealed to us because God doesn't show us everything at once. He shows it to us in stages. And in Deuteronomy 14... He begins to reveal of what more the tithe is about. He begins to tell us that the tithe will come this way. And maybe the tithe might be too much. And so you'll convert it to money. And you'll take it to Jerusalem that way. And he also lays out how the tithe is to be for not just what takes place at the temple. But he says the tithe is also going to be for the Levite. the widow and the orphan. He says that in that same passage in Deuteronomy 14. And the part that I want to look at tonight specifically about tithing is what we read in Leviticus. Because what we read in Leviticus is right, is what fits in with what we're talking about 
in this passage in Matthew. And so if we could get someone to turn and read from Leviticus 27, the last chapter. And we're going to look at verses 30 to 32. So Leviticus 27 and verses 30 to 32. So we have several things here. Things that come up from the soil and from the tree, the fruit specifically. And then we have some animals listed in verse 32. And what I wanted to draw out to you here is the very minimal here, or the very least of the ties is mentioned first. The seeds and that which comes from the soil. They were kind of seen as the least of the ties. And when we look here in Matthew, it shows, it shows the definition as Freddie read earlier, the cumin, the mint, and he read the word anise, but the, an, the word in Greek is the word dill. And so these are, these are all kinds of herbs and seeds, right? <clears throat> and these were considered the least of the tithes. The least of the tithes. And it comes right out of this passage in Leviticus. Whereas an animal, that was kind of something that required quite a bit more. It required that that animal be separated, and that animal was no longer to work, or to bear any kind of burden, or to do any kind of... Uh, Normal things that were done with animals. They weren't bred. They weren't done anything with. But they were set apart to be holy to the Lord. And then the people would either take them up to Jerusalem. Or they would, ne or they would never be used at all. They would just be set apart. And if they decided. And, if they, and as we read on in this passage in Leviticus. It says if you decide to redeem it. This is what it will cost you. If you decide to redeem that animal. And what that means is you would buy the animal back. You would buy that animal back in order to use it. So in this next part where Yeshua says, he talks about the lighter and the weightier. And I want to just take a quick moment. If you don't remember from our time of membership... When we talk about the Torah, because it's always good to refresh ourselves with things from the membership class. We talk about the Torah. Some people look at it from two points of view. Okay? And neither view is wrong. Okay? But there's two views to how we look at the Torah. We, look at, we can look at the commandments from the terms of civil, ceremonial, And moral. And this is sometimes how we can look at commandments and say, okay, well, the Ten Commandments, that fits in with what's moral, the moral side of the Torah. 
And we can look at something like from the civil side of saying, um, if someone breaks into your home and you kill, you you make the decision that you're going to kill them, that you're you're not considered guilty. That would be kind of in the civil, under the civil types of things where we have a lot of judgments about if an ox does this, if a donkey does this, if your slave does this. Those all kind of fall under what's called the civil. And they're in the Torah portion called Mishpatim. And then we have the ceremonial. And those are a lot of the laws that we're reading about now in Leviticus, where the tithing comes from, where worship, how we brought offerings and sacrifice, a lot of those fall under the ceremonial. But we also have another way we can view the Torah. And we talked about this before. We talked about it in membership in terms of the light versus the heavy. Or the minor versus what? Major. So in this passage, Yeshua is clearly making that distinction here. He's looking at the Torah from the perspective of the second viewpoint. The lighter versus the heavier or the minor versus the major. Now... On the one hand, they're doing the minor, they're doing the minor commandment to tithe the dill and the cumin and the mint. But he's saying to them, you need to do the major. And in Yeshua's mind, what were the majors here? What are the majors? Justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Justice, mercy, and faithfulness. And there's a couple scriptures that come to mind as I was meditating on this. One of them is in Hosea chapter 2, and the other one is in Micah chapter 6, where these, these terms are used, these same terms of mercy. Well, I think justice is actually first. Justice, mercy, and faith. Or faithfulness. And so, the one scripture that really stood out in this to me was the Micah 6 passage. And I'd like us to turn to Micah chapter 6 and read that. Micah is in the Minor Prophets. They were not minor in content. They're called the Minor Prophets because they were smaller books. But in many ways, a lot of their messages were very big and very much in the face because of what Israel was doing at the time. And Micah is definitely one of those prophets. He was a contemporary prophet of Isaiah. Isaiah and he, in other words, Isaiah and he were both speaking at the same time to different parts of Israel. And so we're going to look at verses 6 through 8. Sure, please. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, 
with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown me, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of me, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. So, does anyone know? I'm just going to throw this out there. Does anyone know the context of Micah chapter 6? What is the context here? These are some great verses. These verses 6 through 8. Chapter 6. Well, if you look at the first three verses, and Maurice, if you back up and read verses 6, chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. Let's get a picture of the context. Hear now what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, O you mountains, the Lord's complaint, and you strong foundations of the For the Lord has a complaint against the people, and he will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you? And how have I buried you? Testify against me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt, I redeemed you from the house of bondage, and I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Oh, my people, remember now what? Oh, that's okay. That's it was good stuff. But a part of the thing is, I it's kind of an actually when I first read this, I kind of sensed God's. It's a little bit funny that God is here speaking to objects that really don't have a way of like processing communication. He's talking to mountains and hills, and he's talking to the earth on behalf. And in some ways, I don't want to say necessarily the Lord's being sarcastic, but it's kind of designed to say, I'm going to talk to you, mountains, because Israel doesn't seem to want to listen to me. They seem to think that I'm the one who's in the wrong here. And I think part of this is looking at this is what's God's heart in this passage. It's a very, it's not, a, it's another one of these passages that I would call not user friendly. God's not exactly happy here. Well, he's in this. exasperated. Correct. He's very exasperated. And there's a reason why. But in the midst of this, we have these verses 6 through 8. And I want to suggest to you, these verses are talking about worship. Notice the very first part. How shall I come before the Lord? And what am I going to bring? And what will make me pure? Uh, by the way, Michael, uh, the uh, picture that the Lord draws for them is that of being in a courtroom where Israel are the defendants and the uh, mountains and the hills and so on are like the witnesses and that's a and that's very true. It's a very uh, that's a constant theme that we see the Lord do. We see that in Isaiah chapter one, where the Lord says, "Hear, O heavens, and hear, O earth." And part of the picture is God saying, "You're not listening to me, so let's bring it before the heaven and the earth, because the heaven and earth do make a testimony in and of themselves, whether we understand that or not. They speak by how." We treat them by what we see the fruit that comes from them in connection with what we're talking about kind of in this, in this, this idea of the tithe. 
And here we have the majors being pointed out. And the first thing that I want to notice is the Lord said in verse 8, He says, He's showing you, O man, what is good. And the word for good there is the word tov in Hebrew. Tov. And the tov, when it's a lot of times, what I like to sometimes do is say, how is this word first used in Scripture? Does anyone know where it appears first in Scripture? Creation. Creation, right. And part of the thing that we have to understand is Tov is a judgment. God is making a judgment here and saying, this is good. This is good what I've made. In fact, I've illustrated this before. In Genesis, we have first God we have first God speaking, and then we have Him looking, and then we have Him separating or judging. And that's kind of how God's standard is. God says, let there be light, and then He goes and says, and God saw the light. Why does God look at the light? To see if it's doing what it's supposed to. And then God separates the light. And he says the light is good. And then he gave the light a distinctive name, day. And that's kind of this whole picture of Tov. He has shown you, O man, what is good. There's a standard in which we do things. And I wanted to uh, tease out that other word, um, requires there... And I'm not sure if I have this right. Is it da, da arsh? Doresh. Doresh. And is that the and part of what I saw in that is that there's a seeking of what you're looking for. The Lord is saying, what I require is a seeking and a finding. And that's kind of what he's drawing out here is that are you really seeking of what I've required? Are you really looking for it and trying to understand it. And then he gets into each of these next words, the justice. What is the word? Does anyone know? It's in your notes. Mishpat. Where we get mishpatim and shoftim, judges. And mishpat also has the idea of not just judgments, but deliverance. Do you know that God's judgment, and this is where we come back to this idea that it separates, it's also a deliverance to you. If it separates you from other things, it's delivering you. It's making you set apart. Just like the children of Israel were delivered from Egypt. It's a judgment that was what brought them out. It was God's judgment on Egypt. And so a judgment... Sometimes it's better to sometimes think of them as a deliverance. And then we see the next word. He has shown you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires. To do justly, to love mercy. And you know what word that is? Chesed. And what is chesed? Covenant loyal love. And sometimes our Bibles just call it grace, but there's so much more to chesed than just that. And then the next part, and to walk humbly. 
And that word in Hebrew for humbly is zana. Zana. Zana? Okay. And zana has the idea that of, of being humiliated or humble, humbly or lowly. And part of the picture that that is, that as I was looking at that word and that some of the ways it's used, it's kind of that picture of refining. And so some of your some of yours actually say, or to walk purely with your God. To walk purely. And they're picking up on that sense of zana to be a, purit- a purifying, a changing. <clears throat> and that's kind of what I think Yeshua is pointing at when he's talking about to the people. You're not you're neglecting this part. And this is the part you should be chasing. The, the justice, the mercy, and the faithfulness. That he wants people to chase those things, but notice what else he says about it. Not only are they chase those things, but what else? Not leave the others undone. Kind of an important piece, because Yeshua's and unfortunately, a lot of people look at this passage and say, see, Yeshua is anti-Torah in this passage. But here he's actually upholding the Torah and telling them, I do want you to keep tithing and doing the work of even the least of the commandments here. But what I really want you to chase is this, but don't leave this undone either. And so that's kind of important because in this passage, He's really been giving it to the Pharisees, but it's important to look at Yeshua also holding up the Torah in the midst of this, because a lot of people can look at it from that perspective. Here's Yeshua being anti-Torah, but he's being both. He's he's telling them, chase this and do this. And so there's also an affirming. Also an affirming. And then in the next pass, in the next verse, back to Matthew 23, if he talks about you blind guides. And I, I don't remember if I shared this last week, but in this passage, he uses the word blind five times. Five times. Especially in these two passages about oaths and how it, and, and ties. Specifically getting to the point of you're blind to what God's pattern of worship is. You're not really keen on what God is wanting in terms of worship. And so here in the verse 24, he says, you strain at a gnat and you swallow a camel. Are these literal things? So we understand he, right off the bat, he's speaking very figuratively. But what I want to draw out is a lot of ways this is sim- similar to what we were reading in Matthew 19 earlier in our study when we talked about unless a camel goes through the eye of a needle he's not necessarily picking a gnat or expecting people to be eating gnats or eating camels both of these are unfit or not kashrut by any means but he's just trying to pick on something small a gnat was very small And yet, he says you're straining to, 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 to consume that. 
And yet, he says, you swallow a camel. And part of the picture here that I think Yeshua is getting at is there's a suggestion that maybe there's a play on Hebrew words here. A Hebrew word play that unless you understand these words in Hebrew, you may not be understanding what he's getting at. And to help us define this a little more, I want us to turn over to Genesis. In Genesis chapter 24. Genesis chapter 24, verses 17 through 19. And part of, our, part of the words I want us to look at in the passage here are the words swallow and the word camel. Because both of them are in this passage. Can I have someone read verses 17 through 19 of Genesis 24? Thank you. So in verse 17, this idea to drink, and in Hebrew that's the word, if I'm saying this right, gamma. Gamma. And it has the idea to absorb, to swallow, or to drink. And then we have camel. Does anyone know the Hebrew word for camel? Gamal. Thank you, Abraham. Gamal. So he's saying, and I don't know how you exactly say this, you're swallowing the camel. Gama, gamal. Gamaha, gamal, I guess would be, or I'm not probably conjugating that right. That works, <laughs> but this might be part of the wordplay that maybe he has in mind with the idea of swallowing. And we saw the idea, notice that the word also swallow has been used back in verse 14. That they swallow widows' houses. Swallow widows' houses. And I'm going to reconnect us back to those woes and move back to, to verse 13. Because we've been talking about worship. And part of the idea that we first get when we come to the idea of worship is we understand who's God and who's not. Right? Hopefully, hopefully that's a basic when we come to worship the Lord. I'm not God, God is God, and I need God. And basically, in verse 13, Yeshua woes on the Pharisees because He says, you don't enter the kingdom and you're not allowing those who are following you to enter either. And part of what I think he's teasing out here a little bit 
How do we enter the kingdom? How do we enter God's kingdom? Well, you accept Yeshua, but before you accept Yeshua, what do you got to do? What's that? Teshuvah. What is Teshuvah? Repentance. Sorry. Teshuvah, to repent. And Yeshua, we see throughout his first words in bringing the kingdom message, he says, repent. Repent. We see that back all the way back in Matthew 3 and 4 with John and Yeshua when they first came. That that message of repentance was how we got into the kingdom. And we understand too, it's not just something that's an act, a doing, but it's a spiritual transformation. Spiritual transformation has to take place if it's real teshuva. And Yeshua makes this very clear in John. And back in John chapter 3 when he says, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless a man is born of both the water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And so there's got to be not just repentance, but a spiritual transformation that has to take place. And that's a big part of what he's talking about when he says, you'll enter the kingdom and you're not allowing the people who follow you to enter. Because when we first started talking in this entire section last week, I talked about the fact that there's a connection to the relationships. How we are connected and how the Pharisees at that time were connected to people too. How was their relationship with God? How was their relationship with the other people in their lives? The people that were following them, Yeshua is saying, you don't allow them to enter and you don't enter either. And part of what I think Yeshua is picturing in, in this picture is he's saying you're not doing teshuva. You're not repenting. And what I want to talk to you about is that when he says kingdom here, I think what he's talking about is his movement, his working of the spirit that's now taking place. Because the kingdom of God began with creation, and we see that it's first mentioned in in Exodus when the people come out, where um, in the Song of Moses they say, Adonai yimloch le'olam va'ed. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. A lot of people point to and say, that's the first real mention of God's kingdom, of God's power reigning and ruling. And Yeshua also took that idea, because we all understand what a kingdom is. What happens with a kingdom? What happens with a kingdom? Well, we have a king, right? That's the basic. And what does the king do? The king rules. Okay? And a lot of times, when we say in kingdoms, we search throughout the whole Tanakh, kingdoms, they rise and they fall. And in their rising, 
They may occupy places, and they usually occupy it by force. In a very violent manner sometimes. You read the book of Kings, the book of Judges, you see a lot of violence. But Yeshua said that his kingdom was very different. Very different because there was a spiritual aspect to the violence. There was a spiritual aspect of the occupation. And we see that developed earlier in Matthew where he says in Matthew 11.22, the kingdom suffers violence and the violent take it by force or the violent lay hold of it, depending on how it's translated for you. And what it's picturing to me is how the kingdom is a forceful moving of God's power and authority. It's one kingdom invading another kingdom. It's the kingdom of light invading the kingdom of darkness. But Yeshua made it very clear. He says, my kingdom is very, very different. And I want to look at one of the passages that talks about this in John. In John chapter 18, near the end of Yeshua's life and ministry, he makes a statement about the kingdom again. The kingdom, did you realize, it's mentioned a hundred times. A hundred times in the Gospels. Something very dear and near to Yeshua's heart. If he's going to mention it a hundred times. And it's something that should challenge us. Are we in the kingdom? Are we being part of God's kingdom and part of God's ruling and reigning? So let's read uh, John 18. And let's read verses 35 and 36. kingdom and I think sometimes when he's using this term my kingdom he's talking about the movement his movement and how it's working the kingdom of God where we see most of this come through was actually this idea of taking on the yoke of the commandments the malchut shemaim as it was referred to in Yeshua's day it may actually to take on the yoke of the commandments. But Yeshua makes a different distinction here what his kingdom is about. Because in that day, there were Pharisees in the kingdom. There were zealots were probably a big part of the kingdom. And how did the zealots look at how kingdom work was to be done? By force. By force with the sword. And we even see that both Judas Iscariot, Yehuda from Creot, as, as David Stern puts it, and Shimon the Zealot, or the Canaanite, these were two people that were part of Yeshua's Talmudim. Not, not Canaanite, Michael. Uh, oh. the, the, uh, uh, the Zealot, uh, Kanaim. Kanaim? Okay. Okay. I'm 
uh, for being corrected if I'm wrong. <laughs> um, but the bottom line is, Yeshua had these folks in his midst, and he's making a definite different distinction. If you're part of my kingdom, you don't fight. You don't fight the way other people fight. And you don't take by force. And Pilate, being a governor, a man who was in charge of many soldiers, legions, he had the ability to fight. He had the ability, if something was not right, he would take those legions and move in power. But Yeshua makes a clear distinction. My movement doesn't work that way. My movement is totally different. And part of what he's pointing to is that it was a movement of one person's life being changed at a time. One person coming in. And let's look at uh, Matthew 21, 38 through 42. Because this is the picture of what I think Yeshua is talking about when he says, what are they doing? Why are they not entering the kingdom? Why, are don't, why does he say they don't enter the kingdom? And why does he say, and they don't allow those that are following them to enter either? Matthew 21, verses 38 through 42. Actually, I don't think that's... Yeah, you were 10 verses back. I'm sorry. That's okay. But when the... But when... Let's see. But when the husband's... No, no, no. This is not... I believe we're in the wrong chapter. Is it 28? Yes, I think it's 28. I'm sorry if I gave the wrong verses. I think it is 28. Okay, but what do you think? A certain man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go. Work. Go work in my vineyard. But he answered and said, I will not. But afterward, he repented and went. And he came to the second and said to him, and he answered and said, I go. But, sir, but he did not go. Whether of these two men did the work of his father? And they said to him the first, Yeshua said unto them, Truly I say to you that the publicans and the harlots 
go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came back, John came unto you in the way of the wilderness, and you believed him not. But the publicans and the harlots did believe him, and you, when you had seen it, they repent. You repented not afterwards. And so part of what Yeshua is getting at here in this passage is those who repent, those who turn around from going the wrong way, as pointed out in both the parable, and then he makes it very clear, the harlots and the publicans, they're the ones entering the kingdom because they are turning and hearing the message. And they realize they're going the wrong way and they need to turn around and go the correct way is what she was talking about when he says this about the publicans and the tax collectors. Now, the Pharisees also had power in the synagogue, and they at times would also use that power to pressure people not to believe in Yeshua. We see that specifically in John chapter 9, where the blind man is healed, and yet they say, no one is to believe that in this Yeshua. No one is to believe and to follow him. And part of the application is this, is sometimes God does things outside the box that we don't always get or understand. And what I want to suggest to you is even Yeshua's disciples had problems with that. They had problems too when people didn't come along and do everything just the way Yeshua wanted them to. And we see an actual event where John comes to Yeshua and he says to him, um, there's these guys, they're not following us. They're not doing what we're doing, but yet they have power to cast out demons. And Yeshua challenges John and says, look, he says, if they're not for us, if they're not against us, then they're for us. And we should not limit them. And I want to suggest, too, that the Pharisees are doing similar idea here. They're limiting the people's ability to enter God's kingdom if they use that same approach of saying, no, the kingdom has to happen this way. The kingdom has to go this way. And the fact is, it all starts with repentance. And the reason he makes that woe to them is because they're not making that connection to repent and encourage others to make that connection to follow after him. And so I know I'm getting close to time. I'm not positive. but got three minutes. Three minutes. <laughs> well, <clears throat> we'll hopefully be able to complete the last two woes of verse 15 and the final woe mentioned and what I want to suggest to you, what the Lord's opening up to me is talking about how the, this is an importance of relationships. And these last two woes, as you go and you study maybe in your own study this week, look at how the connection is here. Because we have in verse 15, we have more of the followers of the Pharisees. Specifically mentioned here a proselyte. And a proselyte was what? Does anyone know? Fickle. 
a convert, a full convert, someone who made the full convert of actually becoming circumcised and being Jewish. And then, the last woe, he talks about your fathers. And part of what I believe God is trying to say as we've been talking about these relationships is we need to see how we're connected to each other. How we are connected, how the people that support us and follow us look at how we live and what we do. And how we have to look at that. And how we treat our relationship with God. And so in the next portion, that's what we'll be looking at it. We'll be looking at it from the vertical. The followers who have come after the Pharisees, as well as their fathers. How their fathers persecuted the prophets. Because there's always that connection on the vertical. We don't like to always look at those vertical connections. I can honestly say it's hard for me to look at my own connection with my father because he's not a saved person. But there is a connection to his life and mine. God sees it that way. God tells me to honor him. And there's also a connection to those that we disciple and come after us. And so I just want to emphasize this as going into this last section. Not to minimize the relationships we have. The relationships we're connected to here. The relationships that go outside from here. They're all connected in how we learn to worship and serve the Lord. So that's what we'll be looking at next time to kind of complete the seven woes. And um, Avraham, would you pray for us tonight to depart? No? Okay. That's fine. Um, Let's see. Uh, Maurice, would you? Are you still in the room? Okay.